to open up your copies of God's Word to the book of Colossians. We'll be looking this morning at Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Colossians 2, 8 through 10. If you're ever looking for one of those smaller epistles in the New Testament, a trick someone taught me a long time ago is after Romans and the Corinthians, you look for the General Electric Power Company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. We'll be this morning in Colossians, the second chapter, verses 8 through 10. Now, if you've been joining us for our evening worship services, uh, we, we thank you. And also, you're getting the benefit right now of knowing exactly where we are, already knowing the context, already having uh, received the sermons that have come before this, as we have been making our way for a few months now, uh, a few Sunday evenings of each month, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through this small yet full epistle to get to this point. And so when I saw that I was going to get the opportunity... Uh, to preach a couple of Sunday morning worship services, I knew pretty much immediately uh, that I was going to pick up and continue exactly where I'd left off in the book of Colossians. Uh, Mostly, I promise you mostly, because I do firmly believe in that reformed practice of Lectio Continua, of preaching verse by verse, that it's it's far superior to randomly jumping around from spot to spot, topic to topic, but also a little bit. A little bit because I pray it might encourage some of you brothers and sisters to come back and join us on Sunday evenings. Uh, because if you uh, look ahead this evening, I'll be preaching from Colossians 2, 11 through 12 on the Reformed view of baptism. Next Sunday morning from verses 13 through 15 on the power of the cross. And that Sunday evening from verses 16 through 23 on Reformed worship. So, you know, a little bit if you want the chance of not being completely lost it might encourage you to come back and join us for evening worship. But maybe I'm, maybe I'm a little bit too hopeful, but I believe in you guys. All right, so Colossians 2, 8 through 10. This morning we're looking at what it means to be filled in Him, filled in Christ Jesus. Uh, this right here, being filled in Jesus Christ our Lord, is, is the antidote, is the cure to all worldly deceit and philosophy. And we're only going to have two points this morning. Only two points that we're going to consider, two options really that Paul presents. You can look at it as, as two doors. You have uh, door number one and door number two, and you, you've got to make a choice. It's like one of those old, uh, older uh, TV show uh, games. Uh, it's a path, a fork in the road, and you have to make a choice, a decision of which one you're going to go down. That's what we have this morning. We have first, we're going to consider the, the first door, the first path, which is the philosophy of the world. The philosophy of the world. And the second door, the the second route we can take, the one I I believe that most of us are on and that we would pray that we continue on, is the path of the Christian message. The philosophy of the world and the Christian message. Before we hear from God and His Word, I would ask that you join me in prayer one final time. Almighty God and gracious Father, we ask that as we give our attention to your word, holy and true and pure as it is, that you would open our eyes and ears and soften our hearts that we might behold wonderful things from your law and gospel through our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Colossians chapter 2 verses 8. Through 10, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that this is God's 
holy word. It is inerrant, it is infallible, and it is sufficient. Hear it now. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Amen. And so, we consider first in verse 8 the philosophy of the world. Paul writes again as you look to his word there in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. And really he just summarizes it all there in that last catch-all phrase, that which is not according to Christ. This is the first choice. This is the first door, and it's really not even a choice. This is our default setting as human beings in a post-fall world. Every single one of us are born now already placed on this path, walking in this direction. This is our our default programming now, post-fall. Paul calls it philosophy and empty deceit. Now Paul is using this word philosophy a, a bit more specifically than we commonly use it as we ordinarily use it. Philosophy in and of itself isn't bad. In fact, you would have a hard time making that argument if you look at some of what Paul does and argues even in the book of Acts. We find Paul using the philosophies of the Greeks and turning it on their head and using it against them. Philosophy in and of itself is not bad. If we look at the technical definition of it, philosophy is literally, according to the Oxford Dictionary, quote, the love and pursuit of wisdom. And I think we could all hopefully be on the same page that that's a good thing, to to love wisdom, to pursue wisdom. Is that not basically the whole point of the book of Proverbs? Christians should love and pursue wisdom. And so Paul is not saying here, we, we have to first make this clear, that Paul isn't saying that Christians should have no place for philosophy, or that anything and everything that falls under this umbrella of philosophy is bad or, or unuseful or improper for Christians. But rather, he has a very specific type of philosophy in mind. This is why he adds the clarifying specification that it is philosophy, quote, look at verse 8 there, and empty deceit. It is a philosophy which is characterized by empty deceit. The word empty here is the same word used in the Septuagint in the Old Testament in Judges 7.16 in Genesis 37.24, it refers to places and vessels which contain nothing. The feeling I have when I go to pick up my coffee cup and take a sip and realize I've already drank it all and it's empty. It's empty. It's, It's deceived me. It's tricked me. There's nothing there. This is the word that's being used. And Paul is using it here metaphorically to mean that type of teaching, that type of philosophy, that type of tradition, if you remember where we were last Sunday evening, which is vain. That which is devoid of truth. It's empty-handed teaching. Again, Paul is using the word very specifically here. Uh, Multiple commentators, it's it's a rare thing when you find almost a dozen different commentators from different denominational backgrounds that all agree 
that a passage or a word means the exact same thing. This is one of those places where even the Thayer's Greek lexicon even points out that this word philosophy that Paul is referring not to theology, but to something called theosophy. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't heard of that word, theosophy, rather than theology. Thayer's Greek lexicon states that Paul here specifically is referring to theosophy of certain Jewish Christian ascetics. Remember, we've spent the last couple of Sunday evenings, and even Brian and God's providence, we didn't meet together and compare notes, but the Lord's good like that sometimes with the help of His Holy Spirit. We've spoken multiple times over the last month on what asceticism is. These detailed, elaborate traditions, things like uh, candles and, and lights and, and fog and sensors, these things which are meant to uh, arouse all of the emotions and feelings in the place of worship. And this is what Paul is referring to in a type of Jewish Christian ascetic which Thayer's lexicon states, which busied itself with a refined and speculative inquiry into the nature and classes of angels. Paul will specifically address that in a few verses. The ritual of the Mosaic Law and the regulations of Jewish tradition in daily life. He's referring to that theosophy. And this isn't something that's gone away 2,000 years ago. I promise you this is something that is still prevalent within the church in America. Theosophy, more generally, according to the Oxford Dictionary, maintains that knowledge of God may be achieved only through spiritual ecstasy, direct intuition, and special individual revelations. We see this most commonly in the charismania movement in certain denominations, which puts down the prominence of the preaching of God's Word, which, which turns its back to the ordinary means of grace, the preaching of the Word, the hearing of it, praying of prayers, singing of songs and hymns and psalms, instead favoring lights and fog machines and, and special indirect words from the Lord in your life. This is what theosophy is. And so we see yet again that Solomon's word stands true, that nothing is new under the sun, is it? It's just rebranded every few decades. It's more of a philosophy than a religion itself. Its roots can be traced all the way back to ancient Gnosticism, which itself borrowed from Greek philosophy and mysticism. This modern form of this theosophy that Paul is talking about draws heavily on Eastern religions such as Hinduism and Buddhism. People that follow this nowadays would refer to themselves as spiritual, but not religious. They draw heavily on beliefs in such things as karma, astrology, the use of crystals, meditation, earth healing, and sometimes even reincarnation. We refer to this as New Age spiritualism. Theosophy usually denies the existence of a personal, infinite God. And yet we see so clearly how opposite to the scriptures this teaching is. Think of folks who say they're spiritual but not religious. This isn't just an issue of the past. This isn't just something that Paul and the Colossian Christians were dealing with. It's something prevalent in our culture today. This isn't just a fringe movement. According to research done and conducted by the Pew Research Center and published in 2017, those were the most recent numbers, 27% of Americans now identify themselves as, quote, spiritual, but not religious, which had went up 8% in 2017 
in the five years leading to the publishing of that study. And so, if we do some basic math there, and if the trend continued, it's likely 35% of Americans now who identify as spiritual, but not religious, that adhere to some form of this new age spiritualism, which is really just rebranded Gnosticism. Think about that. That is over one in three Americans. It's higher, you'll note, than the percentage of Americans who identify as evangelical, a number which, according to the Pew Research Center, sits only at 22%. And so now spiritual but not religious now outnumbers evangelical Christians in America. Pew Research notes that this is not an isolated phenomenon either, uh, relegated to certain groups in certain places. But rather, Pew Research states, quote, this growth has been broad-based. It has occurred among men and women, whites, blacks, and Hispanics, people of many different ages and education levels, among Republicans and Democrats. And repeatedly throughout the Pew Research article, they note how not just a few, but actually the majority of those whom they interviewed who identified now as spiritual, spiritual but not religious, grew up in evangelical Christian homes, attending church multiple times a month. Here's some quotes from those who identify as spiritual but not religious. One said he finds his version of transcendence in nature. Another said, living in the city, I fill my apartment with plants and herbs, much green life. I cleanse myself with Dead Sea salt baths and other herbal healing baths. I love nature and herbs, and I believe they are magic healers of the earth and connects us to the spiritual. Another one wrote that she sees her practices and rituals as a form of self-care. And she continues and says, The practices I consider spiritual are the things I do to care for myself in a deep way, to calm myself when I'm distressed, to create meaning out of the experiences of my life. Now get this. Although I'm not sure whether I believe in a higher power... I do keep an altar full of objects that are symbolically significant to me. And I sometimes perform rituals in which I call upon deity or deity archetypes. She went on to say, I do not often believe that there's a divine order to things, but it's in practices like these that I begin to create beauty out of the chaos I often feel I'm surrounded by. That woman literally built an altar in her home at which she invokes deities, spiritual beings, yet she doesn't actually believe in a cosmic divine order. How heartbreaking. How hollow. How empty. How sad and tragic. Paul uses the word empty to describe it here. All of these spiritual but not religious people are making desperate attempts to fill a void that they recognize, that they feel. A longing for spiritual connection. But instead of turning to their Creator, they attempt to create a plug for that gap out of thin air in their own imaginations. It's all empty. Empty deceit, Paul calls it here. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling man and birds and animals and creeping things. Or in the case of many of these who identify as spiritual but not religious. We could say that they exchange the glory of the immortal God for crystals, astrology, karma, meditation, yoga, spirits, nature, and the universe. As 
The way many of them speak of the universe willing this or not willing that as though it were a being itself. But far from being new age as it describes itself and a fresh perspective that many adherents think it is, it's really just the exact same mysticism, the exact same asceticism, the exact same Gnosticism that Paul and the gospel of Jesus Christ have been fighting against for 2,000 years. And it all has three things in common that we'll look at closely here under our first point. It's all according to human tradition. It's all according to the elemental spirits of this world. And it's all not according to Christ. This philosophy and empty deceit that Paul warns the Colossian church about and us about, he says, is according to human tradition. Now, both Jews and Greeks in this day and time held tradition in high esteem in their religious lives. Teachings, doctrines, and and practices handed down from father to son, from teacher to student over the ages. And and not all traditions are bad. We spent time looking at this uh, last Sunday evening. But these false teachers in here that have embedded themselves within the Colossian church were arguing that their message, that their tradition is the right one, but likely pointing to how old their beliefs and teachings were as evidence of its validity, of its veracity, of its legitimacy. But they were nothing more than the best guesses and mere inventions of men. That's as deep as their spiritual authority goes. It's just all the traditions of men. And yet, as we consider the Christian tradition, that tradition that we have received in Jesus Christ our Lord that we considered last Sunday evening... The tradition of Jesus Christ, our Lord, is vastly different. It's vastly different. Because we find that the Bible is not just the product of human guesses. It's not just the product of our quest for transcendence. Rather, God's Word, this Bible, this Bible right here, it is the product of the transcendent God coming down to reveal Himself to us through the God-man, Jesus Christ. Our conviction and our confidence lies not in the mere inventions of men and their traditions, but in the final authority of God's Word. This philosophy and human deceit that Paul warns them and us about is also, he says, according to the elemental spirits of this world. Yes, it's according to human tradition. It is according to human tradition. But Paul gives us a a clear And I think fearsome warning here. It's according to human tradition, but there's something more sinister going on here behind the scenes that goes beyond just mere human influence. Paul says it's according to the elemental spirits of the world. What is that? Well, it's a phrase that elsewhere is used in the New Testament to refer specifically to demonic powers, demonic comings and goings. And so Paul warns them, and he warns us, that when false teachers come, when the new agey spiritual but not religious come, understand that it's more than just empty rhetoric. Understand that it's not just harmless foolishness, but that there is actually a real spiritual evil at play here. Demonic forces are at work. And so it seems likely that the Colossian false teachers were actually, maybe unwittingly, but actually invoking evil supernatural beings. The great late Martin Lloyd-Jones in the second chapter of his book, which I would commend to you, Preaching and Preachers, 
recounts the story of a similarly demonically influenced what he calls spiritist woman which came to his church. He writes, I remember a woman who was a spiritist and even a medium, a paid medium employed by a spiritist society. She used to go every Sunday evening to a spiritist meeting and was paid three guineas for acting as a medium. This was during the 30s and that was quite a large sum of money for a lower middle class woman. Well, she got ill one Sunday and could not keep her appointment. She was sitting in her house and she saw people passing by on their way to the church where I happened to be ministering in South Wales. And something made her feel a desire to know what those people had. And she decided to go into the service and did. She came over afterwards. She came ever afterwards, every Sunday until she died and became a very fine Christian by God's grace. One day before she passed, I asked her what she had felt, what she had felt on that first visit. And this is what she said to me. She said, and hear this, brothers and sisters. She said, the moment I entered your chapel and sat down on a seat amongst the people, I was conscious of a power. I was conscious of the same sort of power as I was accustomed to in, in our spiritist meetings. But there was one big difference. I had a feeling that the power in your chapel was a clean power. A clean power. And so notice, it wasn't that her spirituality was completely baseless or that it had no power or that it was all just made up. Far from it. No, she had a real connection to real supernatural realities and beings. But she had, as Paul writes here, been deceived. The spiritual forces that she had been messing around with were real, but they were unclean, dark, vile, evil, demonic. The philosophy that Paul warns the Colossian Christians of and that we should be warned of. We act as though in our modern day and time with our lights and our electricity and our, our pomp that these things are behind us as though they've been relegated to the days of Christ. They are still very much real. And so we should be warned as the Colossians were that this spirituality that these people are offering and that many people offer today had and has some very real components that sound plausible, that make some sense, that have some real spiritual power behind them. But they are not clean. They are deceptive. And they will lead you into bondage. That's what Paul writes in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. False teachers come with promises of newly discovered truths, of new revelations and new realities. Promises that they have found the path to freedom and liberty and fullness that no one before them has discovered. But in actuality, Paul warns us. In actuality, they are empty deceptions which will trap you in bondage to dark, unclean, demonic forces. Rather than being the path to freedom and fullness like they claim, their practices and teachings are only paths to greater bondage and greater emptiness. As a rule of thumb, when someone comes to the church and says they have a new perspective, it's the wrong perspective. Many throughout history have fell for these demonic forces, empty deceit, because they often mask themselves, these demonic forces, as servants of God, as servants of truth. 
The dark, unclean, elemental spirits of this world, they don't come to us looking like red devils with horns and pitchforks like the cartoons taught us. But rather they come as angels of heaven and messengers of God. This is why Paul warns us as he does in Galatians 1.8 where he writes, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach, let him be damned to hell. Just consider how many notable examples we have throughout history. By looking to the founding of Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Islam, Seventh-day Adventism, Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, was visited by an angel who convinced him that he was revealing to him another testament of Jesus Christ. I don't think he was lying. I, I would bet you every, month, every dollar in my wallet that he probably was visited by an angel. He just wasn't a servant of God. Look, as we consider... The Jehovah's Witnesses claim that the archangel Michael came back to do the same for them. I wouldn't be surprised if a spiritual entity did visit them with a message. Consider Ellen G. White of the Seventh-day Adventist who claimed that she had been in touch with an angel when she received these new revelations. Consider Muhammad, who it's recorded in their Quran that he reported multiple times on his daily walks a demonic force bothering him but then he changed his mind and realized, he writes, that it wasn't a demonic force. It had actually been supposedly the archangel Gabriel who had a new word of God for him. I don't think he was lying. It likely was a supernatural being. Instead of just chalking all these up to being mere human inventions and human traditions, Recognize that from what we read in God's Word, both Old and New Testament, that they are far more likely to be the work of what Paul here calls the elemental spirits of the world. Real, demonic forces masquerading as servant angels of God. How are we then supposed to know? How are we then supposed to know? How are we supposed to be able to discern the spiritually good from the spiritually evil? the demons from the angels, the elemental spirits of the world from that which is of the Spirit of God. Paul tells us. Paul tells us. Paul gives us the marker. He writes that they are not according to Christ. They are not according to Christ. The only way to recognize the teaching and influences of these elemental spirits of the world, these demonic forces at play, is to know is to know that which is according to Christ and that which is not. That requires a couple of things, brothers and sisters. This requires first being filled with the Spirit of God. Being born again. But on top of that, it requires that you be filled with the Word of God. The only way to know if anyone, even an angel, is preaching a message to you contrary to the Gospel of Christ, that is not according to Christ, is for you to know intimately Christ's Word. Read it. Hear it. Study it. Memorize it. Meditate upon it. Obey it. That is what we observed Paul saying last week in verses 6-7. through seven, That we walk in Him as we were taught. Rooted and built up and established in the faith. As you were taught. He is assuming you have been taught. Psalm 1 tells us 
Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. It is he who is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Brother and sister, is your delight in the law of the Lord. And not only that, but do you meditate upon it? Do you think upon it? Do you hear it, read it, study it, memorize it, obey it? Not just on Sundays and Wednesdays, but day and night. Consider, how did Christ your Lord overcome the temptations of the devil in the wilderness? How did he recognize and respond and combat the elemental spirit's philosophy and empty deceit? He quoted scripture. He quoted scripture which he had memorized. And let's just point out, he's God. He could have said anything and by definition it would have been scripture. But he quotes the Old Testament to be an example for us. If it was sufficient for him, it is sufficient for you and I. And so that's the first choice, the first door, the philosophy of the world. But Paul offers another option in verses 9 through 10, the Christian message. Paul writes in verses 9 through 10, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. I think Paul's logic here is pretty clear. And I think the choice is clear as well. On the one hand, you have the philosophy and human deceit, the philosophy of the world, which is based in nothing more than flawed human tradition and dark, sinister, evil powers. It is empty. It is deceitful. It is demonic. And it leads only into greater emptiness and greater bondage. But on the other hand, you have the Christian message, the Christian gospel, the tradition of Christ based upon the authority of Jesus Christ. Not on any man or any woman, not on any pope or teacher or pastor, but on the authority of Jesus Christ in whom all rule and authority rests. In whom the fullness of deity dwells. And in who, in return, brings you the complete spiritual fullness you've longed for. In Him, in Christ, Paul writes, we are filled. We are made complete. This is what it means. He's saying that we are pervaded. Richly furnished with the power, presence, and gifts of Christ Jesus our Lord by His Holy Spirit. How can He do this? How can Christ Jesus do what all of these human traditions and all these elemental spirits of the world cannot? Did not Satan offer Christ everything on earth, all of that rule, all of that dominion, but he couldn't back it? So how can Christ? How can Christ offer and accomplish and provide that which no one else in the physical world or the spiritual can? Paul tells us it is because in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. What may seem like a short, simple phrase in the greater body of this letter is actually a theologically dense and rich and enormous and mind-blowing claim. One that I was tempted to spend an entire sermon on. And that which Martin Lloyd-Jones spent a few sermons on. It's one that runs counter to both the religious, not spiritual folks of our day and the Gnostic ascetics that Paul and the Colossian church were dealing with in their day. In both the Gnosticism of their day and the New Age spiritualism that we deal with today, 
Matter and spirit are seen as opposites. Matter, the physical world and body being in some way bad or incomplete. And yet on the other hand, the spiritual is seen as, as good. And so both of these systems come up with elaborate, elaborate ascetic practices to either try and on the one hand bridge that gap between the two or rather completely deny one in favor of the other. And in that type of dualistic paradigm, the claim that Paul makes here is revolutionary. This claim, consider it, brothers and sisters, that the transcendent, immortal God who is spirit and creator is dwelling within the physical created body of the God-man, Christ Jesus. We confess this doctrine together earlier from the Westminster Confession in chapter 8, paragraph 2. And we find it in a summarized form in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the 21st question. The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God became man and so was and continues to be both God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Christ Jesus the Lord is, as the Nicene Creed states, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Christ Jesus is, as we read in Colossians 1.15, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the one by whom all things were created in heaven and on earth. All things were created through Him and, before, and for Him, and He is before all things. And not only that, it is in Him that all things hold together. He is the beginning. He is the preeminent one. It is Jesus that we read of in John 1, the Word which was in the beginning with God and who was God. It is this Jesus that we read of in John 14, 9, who says of Himself, whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. He is, as we read in John 8, 58, as He claims of Himself, before Abraham was, I am which is in turn quoting Exodus 3.14, meaning Christ Jesus is none other than the great I Am. Jesus Christ is the eternal, immortal, self-existent creator God Himself. It is Jesus who is the great I Am who I Am. It is Jesus who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is Jesus who is the pre-existent Lord, who existed long before the virgin that gave birth to Him. And not only that, who existed long before time itself began. There was never a time where the Father was that the Son was not. Everything that we can say of God, we can say of Jesus. Because everything God is, Jesus is. He is fully God. But He is also the one in whom the fullness of deity, as Paul writes here, dwells bodily. And so he is the God-man, not 50-50, not half God, half man, but fully God and fully man. When he, the Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, became man and took on human flesh, from that point on and forevermore, he is fully, truly, really human in every way that that entails. Having not only a created body, as we ordinarily are tempted to think of it, but who also has now a created mind and a created soul as well. 
which while on this earth with all the limitations and liabilities that that involved, we read in the New Testament that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. He got hungry and had to eat. He got thirsty and had to drink. He got tired and had to sleep. He got hot or cold and had to dress accordingly. He got sad and emotional and cried. His flesh was torn and his feet and hands were pierced. He created the very womb that birthed him, the food that would sustain him, and even the people which would kill him. He died. And when he was resurrected and when he ascended into glory, he did so as the God-man, Jesus Christ. Fully God as he had always been, and now and forevermore also fully human as he will always be. Paul writes, in him the fullness of deity dwells present tense bodily. And so now we can be filled in him. Dwells is in the present tense. Don't overlook that. Paul doesn't say he dwelt in Christ bodily, but dwells. Meaning the eternal Son of God, the Creator God, the I Am who I Am, the second person of the Trinity, didn't just dwell on earth as a human up until his death and then ascend to heaven as only God again. He didn't become God at some point or stop being God at some point. And once he became human, he also never has stopped and will never stop being human. The fullness of deity dwells present tense bodily in Christ Jesus now and forever. Consider this, brothers and sisters, as you pray and as you hurt. When the scriptures say that you have an advocate in heaven, he doesn't just relate to you as your creator. He doesn't just relate to you because he past tense walked a mile in your shoes. He can relate to you because right now on the throne in heaven sits the God-man, Jesus Christ. And the good news for us here that Paul is telling us is that because of this unity of divinity and humanity, because it is forever indissoluble, because the fullness of deity dwells bodily in the God-man Christ Jesus, it is because of this that humans like you and I can be filled in Him. It's in Him, the God-man Jesus Christ. The fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you, think about this, the fullness of deity dwells bodily in Him, and He dwells in you, and you dwell in Him. Therefore, even though you are creature, you now have full and unbreakable, indissoluble connection and access and fullness to the Creator. How do you cross that chasm that separates, that separation that Isaiah talks about between you and your God due to your sin? How do you fill that void in your heart and soul? How do you gain that spiritual connection and transcendence and fullness? It's not through crystals or astrology or meditation or yoga or belief in karma and the universe as an entity. It's not through communing with spirits. It's not through Dead Sea salt baths or altars to deities you don't even believe in. The testimony of God's Word is that the only way to cross that chasm, the only way to be freed from your bondage, the only way to freedom and liberty, the only way to fill that void, the only way to gain that spiritual connection and that transcendence and that fullness, it is only found in the God-man Christ Jesus the Lord. 
He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, without exception, no one will make it to the Father in heaven except through Him. He is the only name given under heaven by which man may be saved. His yoke is easy and His burden is light. He is the head of all rule and all authority, the omnipotent, the sovereign, God-King, ruler of the cosmos, who is also simultaneously to His people who place their faith in Him and who repent of their sins before Him. The steadfast, loving, merciful, gracious Father. He is to you now, brother and sister, the mediator, prophet, priest, and king. You must be born again to enter this kingdom. There are no naturally born sons of this Father, except for Christ. You must be born again to become a part of His family. And so I'll plead with you as the Scriptures do in Acts 8.22. To repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Christian, this is cause for rejoicing. You have been filled in Him, made complete in Him, in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Which means that fullness of deity, in a sense, now dwells within you by Christ's association in whom all rule and authority resides. That is your Father. He is able, He is capable, and He is willing. Let's pray to Him now. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your grace. We thank You for Your mercy. And we thank You that You did what none of us could do, that You plucked us off that first path and You placed us on the second one. We thank You that when we yet still hated and despised Christ, that You saved us, You made us whole and you called us your own. That you caused each of us to be born again. Father, we pray for any who might be here or might listen to this lesson later. That do not know you. That have not yet been given the lenses by which to see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. That today would be today. That this this hour would be the hour that you bring them to saving faith and repentance. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name and for his glory and for his people's good. Amen.